0: Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe.
1: Welcome to the Press Row. Behind the scenes stories from the world of sports media. Press Row. Inside and interviews from around the sports world. Now, here's your host,
0: Jonah Siegel. Jonah here. Press Row. Happy to have you back. We, uh, we talk a lot about and we write a lot about and tweet about the whole ratings game and where's the audience gone and where's it going and the future of radio and sports watching and interaction and it's about time that we actually brought somebody on who can talk about this issue in sports media from both the buying and selling side and today we got to do just that at least on the radio side. And uh, he's promised that he'll come back and do it on the TV side later. So much has changed with COVID and people not being in cars that it really is a good time to look back and see where the industry has come from, who the players are, what it looks like, how it works, so we can also try and project forward because we are starting to go back to work, at least here in the States. I think that's where we're going in Canada as well, that people are going to go back. Is that going to completely change listening habits? I'm not sure. Are we going to go back to terrestrial radio? Probably not. But are those just labels and what we call them? Is it really just listening? And how are we going to measure listening? And how are people going to make money from listening? Uh, So Adam Seaborn joins us today. I think you'll really enjoy it. And he's promised to come back so we can tackle TV. So without further ado, here's Adam Seaborn in the press row.
1: Is the press row with Jonas Eagle?
0: So excited to be talking to somebody. I've been I've been looking to speak to somebody for a long time because, as you know, a good chunk of the beginnings of this site and what keeps it afloat for some reason, because a lot of you like this information, is based on radio and TV ratings. Um, I'm not quite sure why the ratings game is A, so interesting, and B, such a mystery, but it is uh, in Canada. And secondly, it's good to talk to somebody who's been on both sides as both a seller and somebody who's been a buyer. And now we have somebody who's kind of on the outside of it, so to speak, having played both roles. You see him often on Twitter presenting the numbers, having been most recently a buyer, uh, he's now in a different world, having gone to the dark side, if you will, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. He is Adam Seaborn, Head of Partnerships at Playmaker Capital. Adam, how are you? I'm good. How are you? That was a, uh, one of my longest, most rambling <laughs> entries. Uh, it I is will so, take it. It is, uh, it is so good of you to join us today, leading into the Bay 2-4 weekend, so I am uh, extremely grateful for you taking some time. Uh, for those of you not following along on YouTube, you can you should know that Adam has an awesome autographed Paul Coffey jersey hanging behind him. Uh, For those of you who don't know, you've heard me talk about it before. Paul Coffey coached my son Jordan at North Toronto Hockey one year, his first year of hockey. Everyone should know that that team went over. They didn't win a game the entire season. But (laughs) Paul Coffey was a phenomenal coach. Uh, If he still owns it and you're in the market for a Toyota, you should go visit Paul Coffey Toyota. I believe it's somewhere on the West End. There you go, free plug for (laughs) Paul Coffee. So, Adam, uh, very high level. You're you're correct me if I'm wrong. You're a Toronto boy, born and raised. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, spent all of your most of your career in Toronto. Looks like you did a little bit of a stint overseas at one point, but spent most of your career there. Went to Queens, came out of there immediately, dug right into uh, the media business. Ended up uh, at Bell doing media sales, radio sales. Uh, We're there for a couple of years and then ended up at an external agency uh, where you were buying media, same type of stuff, but just on the other side. And uh, until recently, where you joined, crossed into the dark world of uh, sports gambling, uh, as it has now exploded, as we've all been uh, inundated with, as the NHL and, and NBA and baseball have exploded, but as the world has gotten back to normal with Playmaker Capital. Have I provided a decent summary?
1: Yeah, that's perfect. Nailed
0: it. And what was the interest in media? Uh, I know what mine was. What was your interest? What, what, what drew you there?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, so my, I'm a diehard sports fan. I think like a lot of people that um, end up in, in sports media in, in some way or another. So as you mentioned, I was at Queens. I was studying uh, media and film studies. I came out of there after doing an internship at Bell. Not actually in the media department, in the in the comedy development department, down on, uh, on the CTV and, and Comedy Network. Um, I, I'd always had a fascination about, you know, how production is put together, how uh, media rights are bought and sold. You know, when I was coming out of school it was right around the time that the Rogers deal uh, with the NHL uh, was signed. You know, you know, Dave Schultz's book, Hockey Fighting Canada. It was kind of a bigger news story. And I had just begun following sports media as a kind of niche story on Twitter and and finding places like Sports Business Journal. Um, So that was where my interest first started. And then uh, I was lucky enough to get a role with Bell Media, um, originally in the National Radio Sales Group, and then moved into a a multi-platform group that included television and and everything else that Bell has to sell under the sun. And I'd say in the first maybe five days there, I realized that everything that I had learned in school was not applicable to what I was learning in the business. And that most of people's conceptions about the way that media and advertising and sports are actually financed, produced, bought, and sold is totally wrong. Uh, and that kind of started a fascination
0: that continues today. All right. So you've dropped a bomb. So let <laughs> let's 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 educate the world. What's the number one misnomer that you're taught in school that's not true?
1: Yeah, I think that there is okay. So I think when people think about advertising. People think about a brand like Apple or Nike, and they think about creating this great brand experience. They think about you know million dollar Super Bowl ads, and they think about um, you know celebrity endorsements and everything like that. That is the 0.1% of advertising. What actually pays the bills is something that's a lot more transactional. Um, It is a lot more about numbers. It's a lot more about finding arbitrage, and that. Uh, Most of the brands, not to say that they don't know exactly what they're buying from app perspective, but there's a number of expert middlemen, whether they're agencies or independent contractors, that are really moving the needle and commanding the whole market. And in Canada specifically, we have such a unique experience because the market is already so narrow. You have the Bell Rogers core situation when it comes to media, and then you have the CBC. That's kind of another story. um, That is just a handful of players around the world that control most of the ad market. And that's even more true in Canada.
0: So let's dive into that. Cause you go to a, you go to a game or you listen to one or you watch one. Yeah. Or you're in an elevator or you're at the dentist chair and you're listening to music and they've got radio on Mm -hmm. you'll hear generally speaking the same type of the block of ads, if you will. So Personally, personal injury law firms, mm-hmm. um, financial planners, car dealerships, uh, restaurants, bars, taverns, breweries. What am I forgetting here? Clothing companies used to be the big one. Co- yep. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Places like TJX used to spend a lot of money, like Winners, Marshalls. Yeah.
0: So when those companies look at radio, do they genuinely see a lift from those ads? Okay.
1: So I'll take a step back a little bit
0: and think about
1: kind of how, how the advertising ecosystem exists. So you have brands, brands or companies or whatever you want to call them, but I'll use the word I So that's the best nomenclature for it. They're trying to reach their customers and they think usually about their marketing in two buckets. They think about brand marketing and they think about performance marketing. Brand marketing is the you know The logo, the white and fluffy, the Super Bowl ad, performance marketing is shop now, 20% off, click here, check out in store, a coupon that takes you into store, anything like that. It used to be cutting coupons. It's really moved all digital now. Um, and then an ad agency or some of the brands do it directly. But for the most part, an ad agency sits in the middle and gets in front of these brands and says, okay, we are the experts. We know how to buy media. And by buy media, I mean buy ad time. People call it media, which gets confusing. But buy ad time. Um, We're the experts. We know how to price it. And we're also going to give you an idea of what your media mix should be. You should be spending, if you have, you know, a million dollars to spend, what percent of it goes to TV, what goes to radio, what goes to print. Uh, It used to be a lot simpler. There used to be about four channels you could advertise in. Now there's about 400. Um, and, And they would, you know, advise a brand. They sit in the middle. They, like any middleman, think of it maybe like an insurance broker or think of it anything. They take a little clip along the way on a percentage of ad spend. And and they go they go on their merry way. Now, um, what what ends up happening is that uh, each one of these areas. So let's say radio, for example, we'll start with radio. That's where I started my career. Um, you know, different brands have different ways that they're trying to leverage radio, and they have different campaigns in market. Um, but at the end of the day, radio as a channel is good at a couple of things. So radio is really great for reach. Uh, I mean, it's been decreasing pretty steadily for the last 10 years, but let's go back in time, even 10 years ago, radio is reaching, you know, 88 to 90% of Canadians on a weekly basis are listening to some radio, hard to reach eighty to ninety percent of Canadians anywhere else. So it's great for reach. Um, it was really great for purchase intent because about 60 to 70% of that listenership happened in car. So retailers loved it. Cause they're like, okay, people are out. They're out in their car. They might stop at a retail location. Uh, also great for automotive brands You're already in the car. There's kind of an association there. And then the last thing is that it was a really great kind of distraction-free environment. You know that someone who's in the car listening to radio, they're not on their phone. They're not tuning in and out. Yes, they might be flipping the channel, but that's all kind of priced in. As opposed to, you know, newspaper, it's hard to know what the engagement level is with that or television or print or anything like that. So that's the way that a lot of media buyers think about radio. And for a long time, radio had, a, a you know, kind of was the number two slot behind TV in terms of where it sits on the pedestal of spend.
0: So does the guy at the law firm, the personal injury firm and at maple Toyota, are they, are they, are they actually seeing people come in because they've seen either their sign on a dasher board or they've heard them on the radio?
1: Absolutely. Yes. Um, and I would say that you can look at like really tactically direct response campaigns. Think about, uh, you know, I, I, I know you're no longer in the Toronto market, but people who are on the Toronto market will think of places like Spence Diamonds, who spend a lot of money on radio. They'll think of places uh, that have jingles like uh, you know 0 pizza Nova. Yep. That rings the phone for Pizza Nova. That gets the phone ringing, and that phone turns into transactions. In today's day and age, you'd look at someone like maybe a more modern digital company, ZipRecruiter. They spend a lot on radio. They hammer the URL. In a 60-second ad for ZipRecruiter, you're going to hear the URL eight or nine times they're gonna see the lift to the website, they're gonna track the conversions and see that. But it's certainly not that every single ad converts some level of customer, some fraction of customer, because if you measure it to that extent, you'd never get there. I would say that, and this is kind of the adage in, in is that probably 50% of your ad spend is being wasted. It's either being reaching the wrong people or people just aren't listening to it, but it's impossible to know exactly what that 50% is. So you need to think about where you're spending. Um, The the last thing I'll say on that is that when you do post-purchase surveys, um, whether it's automotive clients or QSRs, quick-serve restaurants, and you ask people why did they make the purchase, almost no one will self-report that it was because (laughs) they saw an ad. Because there's some kind of – there's this psychological effect. There's been studies done about this, about people don't want to feel like they were influenced by advertising because there's something about, oh, I was tricked. Like the ad got me. They fooled me into coming to McDonald's, or they fooled me into buying a – a Toyota, I didn't actually want one. But the fact of the matter is, is that, um, you know, if if Toyota wasn't spending to be the Olympic sponsor, wasn't spending on maple Toyota on overdrive in Toronto, um, you know, people are gonna buy cars. Maybe they're gonna buy a Hyundai. Maybe they're not gonna think of the word Toyota. So there's that kind of mind share. Uh, and for those really big brands, like uh, an auto dealer, I'll use an example, or banks are great ones too. They're thinking in 10 or 20 year cycles. They're thinking that if I get someone's mortgage, I probably have them for life. If I get someone's car, they buy their first car with me as a Toyota. There's a chance that they're going to buy another Toyota for me. Because now I got them in the dealership location. Now I might have a customer
0: for 50 plus years. So that's the philosophy side of it. Yes. Now let's talk about the lunacy side of it. And that is yes. so in can So I sat here this morning here in yeah. Seattle and I typed into Google Seattle <laughs> radio ratings And instantly popped up, up on my screen in Google Yep, as a Google entry, the same way if I typed in Seattle weather are the Nielsen ratings for this market. (laughs) Basically as of today, the top stations for the last six months and their radio ratings by age and demographic. Voila, it is really that easy. And for some reason that, that, equation does not work in canada it is this big abyss of mystery there where the ball is being hidden yes so the first question is the the, so the organization that controls ratings is called Mm numerus and for the for the listener out there numerus is controlled or managed or funded by the networks or at it's at the it's at the power of the networks so Mm -hmm. why are they hiding the ball and making it so damn difficult for people to understand or get their hands on ratings
1: it's a good question so let me do i'll take a step back so numerus in canada nielsen in the u.s i think a lot of your listeners and readers are somewhat familiar with how ratings work so we don't need to do a one-on-one on on how ratings exist but Numeris here is a member organization, and its members are two people. Its members are broadcasters, so people who have a CRTC license for radio and television, and advertisers, people who are ad agencies um, and who are buying media on behalf of brands. Some brands are actually members as well, but for the most part, it's ad agencies and it is uh, networks. So those two people control this company, Numeris. As a member organization, Numeris is a third party. It's, it's not owned by anyone. It's, it's this kind of member organization. Uh, the TV networks pay a fee to Numeris, a very hefty fee. Uh, and the ad buyers also pay a fee. It's based kind of on scale. So the bigger the ad buyer you are, the more you're gonna pay Numeris, which I always find kind of interesting, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and they have annual dinner meetings. There's opportunities to vote on methodology of, of measurement and all that kind of stuff. Now, why Numeris exists? is so that not every single TV station, radio station can go out to the ad market and say, we were number one last night. We had 100,000 listeners. We need a third party to verify that. And the way they verify it is through, you know, I would say pretty rudimentary. And that's another yeah. conversation perhaps. We can get to that measurement technology where they use a combination of surveys and something called PPM meters. Um, they have you know, statistically significant, I'll put that in air quotes, um, samples in every market. And they're going to give people Ratings that's going to exist for radio on a certain cadence, on TV on a more frequent cadence on an overnight basis. And why the numeric ratings are so important, and this is actually really topical right now because we're in the upfront period when upfronts was when most of the ad time is bought and sold for the year um, in, in both Canada and the US, is that it gives the TV stations something to guarantee to the advertiser. So I'm the agency that buys media time for PepsiCo. Pepsi says, you know, I have a $50 million TV ad budget, go buy it. And you're going to buy Rogers and Bell and Corus and the CBC, but how do you determine what something's worth? They're going to guarantee you a rating point and you're going to figure out what the market cost per rating point is. Maybe it's a thousand, whatever it is, whatever the cost per rating point is against a certain demographic. Well, then later on in the year, you're going to rerun those numerous ratings and you're going to see the station estimated hundred thousand people are going to watch, you know, Murdoch mysteries on CBC at six. Actually, only 30,000 people watched it. They totally mis, mis- measured it. I'm going to be owed the difference. And that's, that's the key, right? So Numeris provides the currency. Everyone decides that whatever numerus says is God. And if the numerus rating says less than you promised me, you're going to owe me the difference generally known as a make good. Now, that's, that's the, the top line. Why is it not public in Canada? Whereas in the US, Nielsen ratings are generally quite easy to get your hands on. There's Show Buzz Daily that does the TV ratings. There's lots of people on Twitter. There's kind of a cottage industry. I think it comes down to generally the way that the Canadian market is a little bit less competitive. There's a lot less media owners, right? So Bell, Rogers, of course, the CBC, it's a few small groups, but I use those four, the big four. And that's English Canada, Quebec, or in French Canada. We'll leave aside for a second, but they control most of the media entities. They also control a lot of the distribution channels. They also control a lot of the content. It's so vertically integrated in a way that it isn't in the US that there's no one kind of fact checking each other within the industry. In the US, there's too many people trying to buy cable channels, trying to buy new broadcast networks. You know, In a market like Los Angeles or New York, you're going to have 60 plus radio stations that are competitive, that make money. In Toronto, the biggest market here, you have 20 or so stations and realistically 10 of them are, are real businesses, I would say. The other 10 are probably just uh, exist because they're part of a larger holding company. On their own PL, they probably wouldn't do business. So um, Numeris, uh, to get the data from them, you got to be a member. Um, and there's no one in the journalistic community. So there's no one at the Globe Mail or, or National Post who's been able to you know, build a level of trust or build a, a, you know, an agreement with numerus or with the TV business that it's in everyone's best interest to publish some of these, these ratings information. So the ratings that you do get are either from the networks when they want to pump their own tires and say, how many people watched us, which are often total BS um, or it leaks out by someone like myself or someone else in the industry. Now the ratings aren't a secret, just to be clear, like the people in the business are painfully aware. Like, every single media buyer, like, they call the station, they get a rating, they find out what something costs, and after, like, after Leafs game seven, there's a bunch of ad buyers saying, what was the overnight? Because you promised me whatever it was, $4 million, and only delivered three, when am I getting my make goods? Like, that call happened the next morning, absolutely. But, you know, just, there's only so many ad agencies in Canada, there's only so many broadcasters, and no one wants to rock the boat. That was a long-winded answer for you. I hope that gives you a little bit of idea.
0: Right. Okay. So that's part of it. Let's yeah. talk about the lack of technolo- technological advancement. So yes. so pre-COVID it was maddening. But you could almost understand it. The world was yeah. going on. We were still commuting, especially in major mm-hmm. cities. In Toronto, you know, you still had hundreds of thousands if not millions of people commuting every day. You know, people were still watching content in the normal, traditional ways, although that was evolving. The cord cutters, the cord nevers were certainly growing. Um, But then this thing called COVID happens, and that is nuclear to to the content consumption business. And still, they're using this ridiculous metering system to capture ears and eyes, if you will. Yeah. It is clear to me that in some amount of years, they are going to have to evolve into a new system. So, so high level, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong. The current system basically is in every major market, there is a profile. So X number of people get a device that is listening to whatever they are listening to in segments. So they need certain number of men, certain number of women. I don't know what they're doing about gender neutral and all of that based on certain age demographics. And then it is listening to what they're listening to throughout day parts for blocks of periods.
1: Yeah. That, so that's a pro I'll, I'll give you a couple things on that. That's approximately correct. In, in Canada, Numeris' panel is about 10,000 people. Um, they have panelists that are both what they call diary panelists, which if you can believe it or not, fill out, it used to be a paper diary. I'd, I think it's moved online now, but literally say, this is what I listened to or watched this week, which is crazy. Um, But the majority of the data comes from what are called the metered panelists. So PPM portable, I think it's portable people meter. I actually don't know what it stands for, but it's a small device. It's like a beeper. It's
0: like the old beeper.
1: It looks like a beeper. Absolutely. And it detects a silent tone that is embedded in the background of your television and radio broadcast so that that silent tone can be ingested from Numeris, and they can match up that, You were listening to the silent tone that was taking place during this minute, during this program. And it does so on a minute-by-minute basis. And that's how we get what's called the AMA, the Average Minute Audience, which is kind of the gold standard for advertising. So Canada, population of 38 million, I'll say 38, 10,000-person panel for the entire country. So I'm not a statistician, but that seems small compared to other (laughs) data sets that we have in, in advertising Um, In the US, Nielsen, about 100,000. So honestly, theirs isn't that much better because they're about 10 times our size or nine times our size. So their panel's not that much better. In the US this year, um, the TV upfronts are underway and there's a number of ad agencies, brands and broadcasters who are not selling upfronts on a numeric guarantee this year. This is the first time this has happened literally in the history of television in the US. Nielsen in the US has existed forever. And since the dawn of TV advertising before Mad Men, people have used nielsen as the standard bunch of tech companies have come in in the us iSpot tv being one of them and others and said this is ridiculous there's so much better data out there um but to answer your question why hasn't it changed and what needs to happen for it to change in the us it took years and years of people saying this needs to change this needs to change but you need the ad agencies and the broadcasters to get on board because they're the ones who are essentially hanging themselves out to drive because what they're Terrified of is that Numeris has been saying for years that a million and a half people watch the Leaf game on Hockey Night in Canada, and it goes up and down and all that. What happens if we move to this new measurement and all of a sudden six hundred thousand people are actually watching? Now I got to increase my CPM, so my cost per thousand by you know three times to make up the lost audience. How are ad buyers going to do that? All of a sudden, are we just going to lose all this share to YouTube and Spotify and Facebook and other advertising channels? Because so it turns out that Buying TV wasn't such a good deal. Um, broadcasters are really concerned about ad cost inflation, which is already happening because even with the existing system, audiences are shrinking. So costs are going up, right? So for every percentage point that the audiences shrink, you can't keep creating new advertising time. There's only 12 minutes of ads per hour. And you'll see if you watch TV in Canada for the last 10 years, every single thing in show is starting to get sponsored. That's trying to make up for the loss of audience elsewhere, right? You're creating new ad units, net new ad units to, to kind of bolster up that inventory. But they're also increasing the cost per thousand, right? And at some point, the cost per thousand gets so high that the advertisers say, this is just no longer worth it for me. It's not converting. I'm better off you know, hiring a thousand people to walk down Young Street and hand out flyers than to buy a TV spot in the ad game. It's gonna cost me less. So that, that's, that's the concern. And in Can- in the U.S., there's enough players and there's been a lot of beating at the door and pounding the drum and tech companies coming in. I mean, Nielsen's a multi-billion dollar company, right? Like it's a big deal down in the U.S. So there's lots of businesses trying to come in. In Canada, I mean, I think most of the ad agencies and I've been on the ad agency side and the broadcaster side, uh, uh, pretty much are saying, hey, well, you know, we're increasing we're doing a little bit better job with the technology. We're going to layer in additional segments. At the end of the day, the measurement has essentially not changed in the last 10 years when they moved on to the PPM meter. Before that, it was all diary, which is crazy. Um, and even since then, they, they have, they've actually shrunk the sample size slightly because they've had issues with getting panelists on board and money. So I don't know what the catalyst in the Canadian market is to, to make change. I think it has to be some large advertisers, think automakers, financial institutions, or some of the largest media buyers, Dentsu, Group M, Cosette, to just say, Guys, we're done. We're no longer guaranteeing against the Numeris rating. We don't buy it anymore. We need a better system.
0: So in other words, they'll wait to see what the U.S. lands on and then just copy that.
1: Pretty much, yeah. Like everything <laughs> here, we're, I, I mean, I used to work. So the agency I used to work for, we had a lot of cross-border business. And I used to always say to clients, Canadian market is about five years behind the U.S. So everything you were doing five years ago, we're just getting now. Um, so we're probably, I mean, no joke, five years away from, from any change with the way that uh, Numeris does things.
0: So I will say that having lived through the beginning and different stages of COVID here in Seattle with friends and family there, I think this is good news. We typically were a month and a half to six months ahead of everything here. Um, Mm -hmm. We shut down first, we got vaccines, varying things happened. For the most part, we were several months ahead. I don't know whether you think this is good news or not, depending on your worldview. But <laughs> market by market by market, this thing called traffic has come back. And we are now at pre-COVID levels here in most U.S. cities. People mm-hmm. are going back to this thing called offices. My understanding is that it has yet to start to happen there. Uh, again, following the tradition of, again, we're a little bit ahead here. I don't know if you're going to hit it for the summer, but I would imagine come Labor Day, uh, assuming that things are things are what they are today regarding COVID, yeah. that things will probably be back going back to offices Labor Day, mm-hmm. which means people are going to start going back to offices and, and buildings and commuting again. Well, let's just stick to sports for a second. I think the sports radio stations actually did a really good job creating content during COVID, especially in a world without sports. So they, they held their own. They actually created really good content in that downtime. When sports came back, they did a good job. They worked from home. Uh, they weathered the storm. Um, they were able to create some really good. Um, they pivoted. They've now put most of their shows up online. They've got online streaming episodes only as someone that both sold and bought sports radio. I know the question gets asked all the time. Where do you think this is going? Assuming we go back to commuting in the fall.
1: Yeah. Listen, So I'm a huge sports radio fan. I listen to a lot of sports radio. Um, I unfortunately don't think that sports radio as a medium has much life left in it in Canada. I think sports talk is growing. The number one podcast in Canada is a hockey podcast and spitting chicklets. Not the number one sports podcast, the number one podcast on often. I mean, not every single week, but often it's the number one podcast in the country. People are interested in sports talk. Unfortunately, listen, I don't think just from a demographic situation, the ability to access radio is very good. Um, I think from a technology standpoint, trying to pivot a legacy radio business into a digital audio business. I mean, you can do it. I think Sportsnet and TSN are doing a decent job attempting it. Um, but I mean, the, uh, the question I would ask you is why? Like why have, uh, you pay CRTC millions of dollars, you have this big studio, you have tons of producers, you have union jobs associated with it, where if you took you know, three of the best hosts in the country, we can use Overdrive as an example, and they just sat down, bought $10,000 worth of equipment and did it in someone's house. How many listeners would actually notice the difference? 80, 90% of listenership listen to it in podcast form. They don't listen it live, but all of a sudden they've cut their costs down to nothing. The revenue source now is still advertising, um, but you're not tied to any of the legacy shackles and chains of being part of a VOO broadcaster.
0: So is there a model for that to exist where a corporation is just producing that type of content?
1: Absolutely. I mean, next year there's gonna be four billion dollars in advertising spent in podcast in the US. So is uh, it, up seven, yeah.
0: So is yeah. it just so so is this just labeling? I mean, so so the guys in Vancouver, my understanding is their show is available live and it's also you can you can stream it on demand. Mm -hmm. So what we're calling, you know, the fact that it's not being broadcast from a radio studio is just Mm -hmm. labeling, right? So
1: well, and 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 cost, it saves you a lot of money, not broadcasting from a radio studio. So that, that's the big difference. It's just much more efficient to distribute things over the internet than over the air.
0: It just costs way less. So there's no reason hypothetically that Mm -hmm. Kyprios and Bourne or Overdrive or Brunt and Ennis couldn't be still going into a studio. Couldn't be Mm -hmm. recording it, couldn't be streaming it live, just not putting it over 1050 or 590.
1: Absolutely. I think that that's very much where things will be in the near future, if not they're already there. Now, here's the one catch with that, and this is a Canadian thing. We benefit from the CRTC here in Canada protecting us from the big bad American media companies coming and taking over. You have to, you have to, you have to have a certain amount of advertising that is simulti- uh, simultaneously substituted. That makes sure that Americans can't just come over the air to feed. The internet is totally deregulated, so the number one sports show now. in Canada is produced in the U.S. Now, is that going to change in Canada with the new bills? I don't think so. To be honest, I think it's going to be impossible to regulate. So Canadians will have to, you know, fight in the open market um, for attention, which I think is a good thing because I think there's a lot of really talented people here in Canada. But I don't think it's as simple as taking, oh, you're the top radio show in you know, whatever market, Edmonton. If we put you online, you're going to gain garner the same amount of attention. I don't think that's the case.
0: You know better than me, but I think there's a difference between US content versus Canadian content versus ads. I, I heard you said ads, and I want to make sure that we're mm-hmm. differentiating between ads and content. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, I can't, I would imagine, and you know better than me, that Mm -hmm. a couple of Canadians doing Oilers content in Edmonton Mm -hmm. or Flames guys doing Flames content in Calgary, Canucks doing Canucks content in Vancouver will do better than a couple of guys doing broader content
1: Absolutely. No, no doubt about that. Local markets are really important. Local sports, like sports is local. I totally agree with you on that in and, Canada more than anywhere
0: else. And, and so I come back to like, I'm a huge Dan Patrick fan. He's mm-hmm. never done really well in Canada. He does okay-ish. I mean, he's picked up, he's picked up some syndication checks from TSN for years. But they're not, his audience, the share, the audience based on the old ratings aren't great.
1: Oh, I mean, the audience wasn't great, but he was picking up a check for something that cost them no incremental dollars.
0: Agreed. But I'm just saying the audience compared to.
1: Totally agree with you.
0: So the local content will do better is my point. The ads I can't speak to, but if you put, if you grab two guys talking local sports in those local markets and put it up as a podcast, I'm making air quotes. Yeah. Yeah. Versus a national show from the U S as a podcast against it.
1: Oh yeah, I agree with you 100. Local, local over national. People like local sports. People engage with their local markets. They want to host who's local to Calgary, local to Edmonton. They're going to the game. They're engaged with the community. The same way the radio station used to. Right. Be. I agree with. You so 100%. if you
0: live, if you live stream that in market and it's stream on demand, mm-hmm. why do you need? Is your point that the CRTC is going to guarantee us Canadian content or Canadian ads? Or both. So
1: so what it, what it guarantees is that a Canadian company gets to take a clip along the way. So for example, I, I think, you know, people, everyone would agree that um, when you're thinking about the, I mean, and this is proven out for facts, right? You think about primetime TV programming, the top rated programs are all U.S. produced programs. However, the U.S. sells those ads to Canadian broadcasters and the Canadian broadcasters then get to sell ads against them, right? So I buy Grey's Anatomy. But now, now that we've gone to a digital first model, Paramount Plus, Discovery Plus, HBO Max can all come into Canada directly over the internet. And there's no Canadian middleman to take a piece along the way. So Bell, Rogers, course, they can't get a clip of that ad dollars. All the money is going to go to the US. It's going to be Canadian advertisers. So an advertiser is going to sell ads against a Canadian audience but the ad dollars are gonna go to the person who actually produced the content who's based in the US. And I think that that is gonna depress the entire Canadian media market to a point where it's difficult to invest in a lot of great Canadian content the way that they have right now. Like a station like Bell and CTV, they made their money on the US content and they would invest the money in the Canadian produced content, right? But if you don't have the money to make them US content, if it's coming straight over the border without any middleman in the way, I don't know if some of the Canadian shows, and this is really entertainment based as well as sports based, are going to be able to survive. Now, sports is different because sports you need something local; it doesn't come cross-border the same way. Um, it's not like movies and entertainment. So, I think that there's lots of opportunity there, but it's going to be a challenge. You have to—you you can't rely on just being in market to win share. The same way, there's no Americans coming into the U.S. or the uh, Edmonton radio market; they weren't allowed to.
0: So, so hypothetically speaking, we come out of the summer. And let's just say Rogers announces that effective the Monday after Labor Day, this isn't a, this is not rumor. I will say it again. This yeah. is not rumor. <laughs> this is just a hypothetical. They're, they're no longer going to broadcast live radio on 590. It's yeah. now going to be stream on demand and podcast only. So they're going to still have the schedule. They're just not going to yeah. broadcast it live. Yeah. Now for me, I'm sitting here in Seattle. When I when I stream it live, I hear their Mm -hmm. ads. When I listen to, you hear hear local Toronto ads. Yep, because I'm listening to TuneIn. I use the TuneIn Radio app. Yep, yep. If I listen to shows or clips using Spotify or Apple TV, Mm -hmm. I don't hear ads. Mm -hmm. It's ad free. So if you're streaming in Toronto using their Mm -hmm. app or something else. I assume, again, you're hearing their ads. If people are streaming on demand, unless they inject, they start injecting ads into the content, that's ad-free. Is that right?
1: Yeah, exactly. So, and they, I mean, listen, the ra- radio and, and television broadcast television, people think about television as being subscription. I mean, a lot of television is free over the air, but ra- radio only has one way to make money, ads. That's the only way that they drive revenue. In a digital world, I don't think that that's a very sustainable business in the Canadian market. I think you need to have a multi-platform with multi-revenue channel approach if you wanna be a Canadian sports content creator. I would say that someone like what SDPN, Steve Daniel Podcast Network does, what I think what one of our portfolio companies does is driving revenue from merchandise, from events, from advertising, from partnerships, but it, it, it can't just be twelve minutes an hour of advertising. That won't translate in a digital world because people do not do not have that kind of ad load, and advertisers will not spend that kind of money.
0: All right. So if if you were at Rogers or Bell, and yeah. you were you were handed the keys just to radio, what is yeah. now radio? You've said that yeah. and sports radio. Yeah, sports radio. You've said that you don't believe the medium has a future. Okay. On the
1: radio. No, I no, on yeah. the radio. No, yeah. no, that's what I'm saying yeah. on yeah. the radio. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah.
0: What do you, what do you want to do? You have carte blanche. You can do whatever you want. What are you going to do? Okay.
1: So first thing that we need to do is properly monetize the podcast feed. So right now when I tee up a podcast from Sportsnet, there's almost no ads in it. I can get an hour, two, three hours of radio content essentially for free. There might be one title sponsor. We need to up that ad load. There's tons of precedent for this listening to the top podcasts in the world, whether it's the Ringer or Barstool Sports or non-sports like SmartList, you can easily in an hour of content have four to six ad slots that can sell at a pretty high premium CPM. That's the first thing you do. You just turn on monetization for the podcast network. Number two, you need to start finding another revenue stream that's not ad related. So you need to get engaged with local markets. So if you are in Toronto, you need to find an engagement tool that's either live events, that's merchandise, that's co-branding and partnerships. And you need to be focusing on digital audio as its own PL. Right now, it's not its own PL at Rogers. It just gets folded in with everything else. I will use 32 Thoughts as an example. Listen to 32 Thoughts. It is one of the top podcasts in the country. There's almost no ads. You have two of the top talent at Sportsnet there. Why are there no ads? It's not because there's no demand. It's because no one over there is focused on it and no one's selling it. That show alone is worth millions of dollars in advertising and it is not executed. And I'd also get rid of all the overhead, right? So that show, I'll use 32 dots again as an example. You have two, two hosts and you have a producer and you might have one technical producer. You have four people. That's all you need. You need $5,000 of equipment. That show is not in a studio. They don't do it under the nice lights. I don't think they need to be in a studio. Um, now, I think what... You know, you, you do have the studio, if I was taking over sports, Sportsnet, so you don't need to knock the studio down. You probably scale it down. Um, but what Kipper and Boren do, I think, is great because they rebroadcast the video on YouTube. Um, I've never seen any of their clips extended on TikTok. I've never seen them try to leverage any social channels outside of YouTube. That's something that I would do. I would have someone who's growth hacking from a uh, social channel
0: to, to grow subscriptions. Awesome. So we've now gone close to an hour, so I don't want to go longer than that. <laughs> But I do want you to come back because I want to talk sports TV and where that's going. Absolutely. So I'm hoping we can come back relatively soon and do this again. More than happy to. I feel like we've just scratched the surface. Perfect. All right. So we are going to call this episode one. Adam, thank you so much. I hope you have an awesome long weekend and uh, we will see you very soon. All right. Talk to you soon. want to thank Adam Seaborn for an awesome chat on marketing and on audience ratings, radio, the future of listening, let's call it, podcasts, streaming, what have you. He's promised to come back, as you heard. Uh, Next time we will do TV. If you want to appear on an episode of In the Press Row, reach out to me. Or if you want to advertise on the Press Row, reach out to me, jonah at yyzsportsmedia.com or you can follow me and drop me a DM at at yyz sports media until next time you can follow us and subscribe on any of your podcast networks thank you very much
1: thank you for listening to another edition of the press row podcast you can subscribe on all your favorite podcast platforms to contact jonah or to sponsor the show email jonah at com.